What lessons should we draw from the ugly Supreme Court confirmation of Justice Brett Kavanaugh? Do conservative voices have an equal right to be heard? Is America really as angry and divided as the media would have us believe? How much winning has Donald Trump been up to lately? And when will the lawsuits against big marijuana start? We're going to talk about all that and more here on the American Culture Podcast. Welcome to Episode 8 of the American Culture Podcast. I am Earl B., the creator and host of this podcast, and today I have five current topics to discuss with you that are shaping American culture. The topics include Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation as a Supreme Court Justice, the campaign to rob conservatives of their voices online, what I saw and learned on my recent travels all across America, more winning from President Trump, and a disturbing new marijuana study shows how dangerous pot is for kids. I am so glad you've taken the time to join us. Now, let's jump into our five stories for this episode. The first one has to be, of course, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Off the top, this entire hearing process was a national disgrace. To ambush the nominee with completely unsubstantiated allegations about a high school party that may or may not even have happened 35 years ago is unprecedented and grossly underhanded. Senator Dianne Feinstein, of course, deserves special condemnation for this farce. Sitting on the letter as she did for two months, she introduced it when she did the last hour for maximum effect against Kavanaugh and to shore up her liberal bona fides with the Democratic base, as she is facing former state Senate leader Kevin DeLeon in a battle between two Democrats on the November ballot in California. Her actions brought the Senate to one what one might think was a new low, as we'll discuss here in a moment. Maybe not so much, but embarrassing for our nation and our institutions nonetheless. The United States Senate used to call itself the world's greatest deliberative body. You don't hear that much anymore these days, do you? But as I mentioned a minute ago, was the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing a new low? Was this an aberration? I think the mainstream media and the Democrats want you to believe that. They want you to believe this, this was a one-time, one-off occurrence, that the rest of the time the Democrats are very civil very high-minded, very easy to work with, very reasonable people, and that this just got away from him a little bit because Kavanaugh was a special case. His conduct against a young woman allegedly was somehow, you know, beyond the pale, and that uh, after this, they're going to behave and and we'll be able to get along with him just fine. But when you dig into it uh, even a little bit, you find that this is not that much out of the norm for the Democrats. If you look at them at relatively recent history, the attacks on Kavanaugh were not an aberration. They were of a piece with Democrat tactics to defeat Republican nominees 
at least as far back as 1987. The most famous of them, of course, Robert Bork. And I did a little research into the Bork nomination and uh, what happened to him. Of course, he was defeated. Uh, an eminently qualified jurist would have been an outstanding uh, justice of the Supreme Court. Um, but he was defeated for purely partisan reasons. And one of the key events in uh, the Bork hearings that led to his being defeated was when ten, Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy, the lion of the Senate, right? Uh, Ted Kennedy, he of Chappaquiddick, took to the floor and made a speech. And in his, in his speech, he said in part, Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions. Blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters. Rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids. School children would not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists could be censored at the whim of the government. And the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens for whom the judiciary is, and often the only, protector of the individual rights that are the heart of our democracy. President Reagan is still our president but he should not be able to reach out from the muck of Iran gate, reach into the muck of Watergate, and impose his reactionary vision of the Constitution on the Supreme Court and the next generation of Americans. No justice would be better than this injustice. You know, Senator Kennedy's speech kind of stunned everybody. No one really could recall such Partisan vitriol being exercised by a senator against a Supreme Court nominee. Uh, the White House was caught flat-footed. They didn't respond very well to the Kennedy speech. Um, and ultimately, uh, Bork was defeated in his quest to be seated on the Supreme Court. The vote was 58 to 42. Um, and now, you know, Robert Bork is a verb in uh, 2002. The Oxford English Dictionary added an entry for the verb bork, B-O-R-K, as U.S. political slang with this definition. To bork is to defame or vilify a person systematically, especially in the mass media, usually with the aim of preventing his or her appointment to public office, to obstruct or thwart a person in this way. So Robert Bork, instead of becoming a Supreme Court justice in 1987, he became a verb in the Oxford English Dictionary. And it's a thing, because the next one time we saw Borking in action was uh, when Clarence Thomas was appointed to the Supreme Court. And he uh, had to deal with last-minute allegations, very reminiscent of what um, Brett Kavanaugh had to face in the last few weeks of, you know, sexual harassment. And these were sprung late. Um, Anita Hill became a cause celeb. And Justice Thomas had to defend his honor and his good name against these allegations in a prototypical he said, she said situation. And Justice Thomas made a statement at the hearings about the predicament he was in, about what an ugly situation the hearings had devolved into. Again, very reminiscent of uh, just Justice Kavanaugh's situation. And one can't help but wonder if Justice Kavanaugh didn't look to the Clarence Thomas example for guidance in how to handle this matter. Because 
some felt that uh, Brett Kavanaugh's defense of himself was too emotional um, and had the gall to say that a, a, a gentleman defending his good name against allegations of sexual assault, you know, made it look as though he didn't have the judicial temperament necessary to serve on the court, which is just preposterous, twisted reasoning. In any event, it was it reminded me of of the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings when Clarence Thomas spoke to the committee, and he said, and this is it's ironic that presiding over the committee at this time, chairing these hearings, was United States Senator Joe Biden. That's right, creepy Uncle Joe Biden of of the wandering hands was presiding over this uh, trial, this travesty that was this hearing for of Clarence Thomas on the Anita Hill allegations. But Clarence Thomas had some eloquent things to say about it. So I'm going to read you much of his statement. And he says, Senator, I would like to start by saying unequivocally, uncategorically, that I deny each and every allegation against me today. That suggested in any way that I had conversations of a sexual nature or about pornographic material with Anita Hill. That I ever attempted to date her that I ever had any personal sexual interest in her or that I in any way ever harassed her. A second and I think more important point, he continued. I think that this today is a travesty. I think that it is disgusting. I think that this hearing should never occur in America. This is a case in which this sleaze, this dirt, was searched for by staffers of members of this committee and then leaked to the media. And this committee and this body validated it, validated it and displayed it at prime time over our whole entire nation. How would any member on this committee, any person in this room, or any person in this country like Sleaze said about him or her in this fashion? Or this dirt dredged up and the gossip and these gossip lies displayed in this manner? How would any person like it? And he goes on, and here's where we get to the crux of the matter with regard to what we saw in recent weeks. He says, the Supreme Court is not worth it. No job is worth it. I am not here for that. I am here for my name, my family, my life, and my integrity. I think something is dreadfully wrong with this country when any person, any person in this free country would be subjected to this. From my standpoint as a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves, to do for themselves, to have different ideas, and it is a message that unless you kowtow to an old order, this is what will happen to you. You will be lynched, destroyed, caricatured by a committee of the United States Senate rather than hung from a tree. I want to go back. It's powerful stuff. And I want to go back to what he said. The Supreme Court is not worth it. No job is worth it. And that's exactly what the Democrats want people to believe. That if you oppose their vision, if you oppose their agenda, if you oppose their view of the Constitution, then you will be subject to a high-tech lynching. And they want to scare good people on the right from stepping forward to serve in these and other high 
offices. They want you to know that if they can at all, at all make it happen, they're going to subject you to a high-tech lynching. They're going to embarrass you, humiliate you, terrorize you and your family in the hopes that if they, even if they can't stop you, they can at least deter others from stepping forward to serve in these roles. We've seen it since President Trump took office. It's been hard for him to find good people, normal conservative Republicans, to serve in his administration because of the ridicule that the left will bring down on people. You know, People lose their reputations in Washington, D.C. if they go to work for President Trump. And it's hurt the president, who has succeeded mightily despite this obstacle. And it hurts our country when good citizens, people of honor, integrity, and talent won't serve for fear that someone's going to dredge up something that may or may not have happened at a high school kegger 35 years ago. It's all part of the strategy. We've seen some comments in the wake of the, the Kavanaugh confirmation, some uh, Hollywood types gloating, hey, yeah, we lost, but at least we ruined Brett Kavanaugh's life. Because that's part of the subtext here. You may not win, but you may prevent others from even daring to enter the fray. So that's Clarence Thomas. And of course, even today, he's a, although he's a very respected jurist by those on the right uh, as a member of the Supreme Court, um, to people in Washington, uh, he's persona non grata largely. He's not invited to the best parties. He's not invited to come lecture at the best universities. Uh, the, the treatment of him uh, for these, what, 30 years now that he's been on the court has been shameful. Um, and they want you to know that too. They want you to know that too. You might get on the court and we're still going to make your life miserable, even if you beat us. Then we flash forward. Neil Gorsuch was the President Trump's first nomination uh, to the Supreme Court. People like to go back, look back, and they've convinced themselves that he he sailed through. And certainly by comparison with, with the Justice Kavanaugh, he sailed through. But even Gorsuch um, had his own challenges. Again, 11th hour, uh, somebody raised an allegation that he um, has a long history of expressing contempt and hostility toward women. Sexual harassment type allegations were raised against him that that he belonged to a date-rape date fraternity when he was in uh, college, uh, that he's been dismissive of women who speak out against the fraternity, uh, that he's made inappropriate comments while teaching uh, uh, law school classes, that he's consistently ruled against women. So they tried to make him out to be a misogynist with antiquated and outdated views of women, uh, which is you know despicable, again, because none of it was true. Uh, likewise, again, 11th hour, last minute, they sat on it for months. They come up with, they came out with an, a plagiarism accusation that he had allegedly plagiarized some law review article or such that he wrote. And it was quickly dismissed by anybody who bothered to delve into the facts of the matter. But again, plagiarism is wonderful. Uh, with, it's a little bit rich. Again, Joe Biden, uh, former senator who used to you know, preside over the committee, uh, Joe Biden, famous, famous Democrat plagiarist. Uh, but when they, when it's, those cards are played against Joe Biden, no problem, you know, not, no disqualification, no ramifications. But if they're going to play the plagiarism card against a Republican, of course it's disqualifying 
because it cast doubt upon the person's character and integrity far and wide. So even Gorsuch, who we want to believe sailed through, really had to deal with a couple of different last-minute scandalous allegations in a, lodged in a very underhanded manner um, that had to be dealt with and disposed of before he could uh, be confirmed. All of which just goes to show that this is this was not an aberration. This is what they do, okay? For the left, and that's whether you call them Democrats or liberals or progressives or statists or collectivists or totalitarians, for them, for the left, a healthy, well-functioning re- republic is not the goal. Free and fair elections, vigorous and healthy civic debate, free speech, freedom of religion, freedom to raise one's family according to one's traditions, these are not goals of the left. Their only goal is power. They want to control every institution, and they want to control you. If they can achieve power and control through fair elections, they're very happy to do so, since that would legitimize their power. But if they cannot achieve power through a fair election, then they'll seize it through a rigged election. And if they can't win a rigged election, they'll try to seize power through the courts, whether by litigation or by taking over as many judgeships as they can. If they can't win in court, they'll seize power through unconstitutional executive action. You might remember President Obama talking about uh, Congress obstructing his agenda and how he was just going to, he has a, a pen and a phone. I've got a pen and a phone. And he was just going to implement his agenda by executive action through uh, executive orders. Unconstitutional in, in many cases, but uh, he wasn't often called on it. And he had some short-term success at it, although it's been somewhat delicious to watch Donald Trump simply overturn those executive orders since he's been in office, uh, which is the downside of executive action versus congressional action. And if executive action and legal action and political action won't do it, the left will turn to direct action, which is code for violence. They'll go after your livelihood, your business, your family. They riot, they target, they terrorize, which is the pattern of behavior we've seen from the left since Donald Trump was elected. It isn't true rage. It's play-acting rage. It's just a cold-blooded tactic to seize the streets, stir up trouble, enlist the mainstream media to... uh, make people believe that their their numbers are larger than they really are to try and terrorize the people or the Congress or the president or some business that they're upset with into changing a policy. And uh, that's not how we do things in America. We have elections here. We have fair elections, hopefully, and uh, we'll vote people out of power that we disagree with. And the people that are in power, they're allowed to implement uh, the policies. And we're, we don't take to the streets. We don't do revolutions here anymore. Um, but that's not, the Democrats don't subscribe to that. That's all about power by any means they can achieve it. But back to the hearings, the behavior of the Democrats and their allies in this case, in the Kavanaugh nomination was despicable. Fortunately, the president stood by Brett Kavanaugh. One has to wonder would a president Romney or a president Marco Rubio have stood by him to the end or would they have been embarrassed by the hashtag MeToo allegations and forced him to withdraw. But the president stood by 
Brett Kavanaugh, and, and the nominee also stood fast. He put up an impassioned defense of his integrity and his good name, and he now sits on the Supreme Court, and the court will be better for it. But Justice Kavanaugh will bear the scars of this fight for the rest of his life. There will be whispers in polite society about what really happened at those high school parties. He won't be invited to teach at Harvard or Yale. His family has suffered and will also bear the scars from this fight. But as ugly as the entire episode was, one can point to some good things that came out of the Kavanaugh confirmation. The fight to seat a true conservative on the, on the Supreme Court brought the Republican Party and this Republican president together like never before. The Republican establishment stood shoulder to shoulder with Brett Kavanaugh on a matter of principle. The unity between Trump and the GOP should serve the party well in the quickly approaching midterm elections. Polls in recent days have shown a sharp tightening of the races for the House of Representatives which many pundits had all but conceded to the Democrats. Will there be a blue wave? Will there be a red wave? It's very much up in the air right now. So if you haven't already, get out there and register. Be sure you're going to vote. Volunteer to help a candidate in your area. Get your family and friends out to vote. Every bit helps. Another positive thing that has come out of the hearings is that many so-called never-Trumpers had their eyes opened. The never-Trumpers are largely members of the GOP establishment who like to blame Donald Trump for bringing coarseness and vulgarity and incivility into politics. In their fantasy world, before Donald Trump emerged on the scene, Washington politics was all just a jovial cocktail party where everyone got along famously and all the differences between them could be smoothed over with a nice compromise. Of course, compromise usually meant Republicans caving into the Democrat demands. It never meant Democrats meeting the Republicans halfway. The baseless attacks on Brett Kavanaugh jolted many never-Trumpers. They finally realized that the Democrat Party is firmly under the control of people who hate us. And they now realize that Donald Trump is the president America needs to fight this leftist hate. In addition to the never-Trumpers, many, many other moderates had their eyes opened. People like my own mom watched every second of the hearings, and they realized how awful Kavanaugh was being treated. Many women, in particular, saw the danger in allowing unfounded 35-year-old accusations to ruin a man's good name. Because these women are married to good men, they have good fathers, they have good sons, and if the left could do this to Brett Kavanaugh, what is to stop them from doing it to someone they love? There's a real sense that the Democrats overplayed their hand on Kavanaugh. They let the mask slip. And more moderate voters saw the Democrats for who they really are, and they didn't like what they saw. Another really positive development out of the hearings was that the hashtag MeToo phenomenon was finally subjected to some rational public examination. The people took a critical look at the idea that we must believe all women or believe the survivors or believe the victims. Because, of course, to call a person a victim or a survivor means that one has prejudged their allegations. It means finding an accused person guilty before any evidence has been examined. People are smart 
They saw the damage that an unexamined accusation can do. People know that women who make an accusation must be taken seriously. They must be heard. They must be treated with civility and respect. But their evidence must be examined. And the accused must also be heard. Because sometimes accusers lie. Or they misremember. Do you remember the Duke lacrosse scandal? In the past several days, there was, a, there was filed in federal court in Pennsylvania a lawsuit alleging a group of high school mean girls conspired and lied to bring false sexual assault allegations against a boy they didn't like, which made his life a living hell until they admitted to their lies. If you have worked on sexual assault investigations or on sexual assault trials, as I have, you know that in a significant percentage of cases, the allegations do not stand up under scrutiny. Women must be heard. Their complaints must be thoroughly examined. But it's foolish to uncritically shout, Believe all women. The second topic I wanted to uh, discuss with you today is the deplatforming of conservatives. Now, I'm going to focus the discussion today on online deplatforming efforts, but it extends well beyond the internet. Conservative speakers at university campuses are disinvited or shouted down or even physically assaulted by student mobs. Conservative student groups at universities are harassed, defunded, dechartered. Student newspapers that publish conservative opinions get stolen. Conservative students know that their views are absolutely not welcome in class. So deplatforming happens all over the place, but I'm going to focus for now on deplatforming online. And the bottom line is that conservatives have a censorship problem. Old traditional media, print, TV, newspapers have long been dominated by the left. But in recent months, we have learned just how firmly the new media, Facebook, Google, Twitter, YouTube, is under the control of the social justice warriors? The answer is, to how much under the control they are, is that these new media giants are completely under the control of the so-called progressives. And they are so confident of their power that they have been, at times subtly, at times aggressively, clamping down on conservative voices on social media. The tactics have ranged from outright banning which is essentially closing accounts, to suspensions, which are temporary closures. It's more like harassment, super inconvenient, shot across the bow, meant to teach a lesson. Shadow bans, which are perhaps the most insidious of all because they'll allow you to maintain your page, Facebook page in particular here, put your articles up on your Facebook page, and yet nobody sees them. Because the way Facebook works is, Facebook has algorithms that go through everything, all of your friends and all your follows uh, post online, and then they show you what they think you want to see, you know, based upon their various algorithms, based upon your past behavior. But with a shadow ban, you might have 100 followers, 1,000 followers, or in the case of Prager University, who I'll talk about in a minute, you might have 3 million followers. Yet, you post a new article, and none of your followers will see that article in their feed. If they specifically come looking for your page, 
they might see it. If they, if they remember, hey, type into my search box, Prager University or American Culture Podcast on Facebook, you can come to the page and you, you should be able to see the articles posted there, but you're never going to see it in your feed, which effectively makes you invisible on Facebook. So the shadow man is horrible. They'll demonetize videos on YouTube uh, by labeling uh, certain subjects as hate speech. And not, I'm not talking about KKK stuff. I'm not talking about racist, misogynist, um, you know, horrible stuff. I'm talking about mainstream, classically liberal, conservative ideas. By labeling those that content as hate speech, YouTube will trigger uh, controls in their system that won't allow the parties or the companies or the organizations that post those videos to sell ads for those videos. So they demonetize. You can't make any money off those videos anymore, which of course hurts because everybody needs to raise money. It costs a lot of effort to produce a video, to put it online, to try and market that video. Uh, you need to be, you know, you need to recover those costs if at all possible. Maybe you're a political action committee. You're trying to raise money for, to, for electoral candidates. Uh, so demonetization is is bad um, and labeling things hate speech, bad, banning, suspensions, um, all kinds of different tactics from the left. And it's not happening to just random trolls on Twitter. I mean, there's plenty of those and many of them deserve what they get as far as being banned or suspended. Um, much of the debate on Twitter is horrible and uh, uncivil and should be tamped down upon. But very prominent, very respectable online voices have been seriously impacted. People like the chicks on the right, who if you don't know who the chicks on the right are, you should go find them. They're hilarious. A group of conservative women who have are incredibly witty, incredibly bright, incredibly entertaining. Diamond and Silk, uh, two uh, black conservative women online who, again, are hilarious. Go find them. Uh, Elizabeth Johnson, who's also known as the activist mommy online, has had problems with bans on social media. Candace Owens, a young black woman, uh, recently emerged as somewhat of a star of the internet uh, and a conservative, has been tremendous. Brandon Straka, who was a former Democrat and is the founder of the hashtag walkaway movement, has had problems with banning on social media. Prager University, uh, who I mentioned, they are an online educational organization founded by uh, conservative conservative icon Dennis Prager, P-R-A-G-E-R. If you don't know Dennis Prager, you should definitely go look him up and learn about him, read his books, read his articles, watch his Prager University videos, which are typically five or 10-minute uh, educational videos on a wide variety of topics, typically current event, political topics, philosophical topics, the Bible, the Ten Commandments, Israel, um, traditional marriage, all kinds of things. Dennis Prager is about the most gentleman, gentlemanly person you'll ever encounter in the public sphere. He is an icon. Uh, he's a giant of an intellectual, um, but there's not a there's no hate in him. And yet, you know, YouTube labels many of the videos that Prager U puts out as hate speech, therefore restricting greatly who can view the videos, restricting greatly the, the ability to monetize those videus Prager had to, Prager U had to sue Google and YouTube to try and get them to stop the 
the banning, the shadow banning, the, the restrictions of his videos. He has not had success in the courts yet. Recently, Facebook started coming down on him. And uh, I want you to read, I want to read to you some of the titles of some of the videos that uh, Dennis Prager and, and Prager U um, were tagged or flagged as being hate speech by YouTube, okay? A video entitled, Why America Must Lead. A video entitled, Everyone Should Stand for the National Anthem. Or, How's Socialism Doing in Venezuela? Or, Is There Life After Death? What is fake news? Is fascism right or left? Gun rights are women's rights. College made me a conservative. Why isn't communism as hated as Nazism? And Israel's legal founding. So you can see from that that uh, Prager used, got a point of view. Okay, it's mainstream conservative views. Um, entirely unobjectionable. In fact, uh, incredibly educational. For anyone who wants to consider themselves an educated person, you should watch his videos. You will learn a lot. Um, but labeled by YouTube as hate speech, labeled by Facebook as hate speech, and uh, thereby reducing the reach of his uh, of his videos, which is sad. Now, this is a pretty intractable problem because under a traditional legal analysis, this is not strictly a First Amendment problem. I'd call it censorship. Uh, but First Amendment prohibits government action to limit speech. And in this case, the government's not acting against Prager U or these other conservatives, these giant corporations are. Google, Facebook, Twitter, um, they're acting to limit speech. They're not the government, so strictly it's not a violation of your constitutional rights. And so you say, well, yeah, you know, you know, we reserve the right to re refuse service to anyone, right? Go build your own website. Go build your own platform and say whatever you want. Google has no responsibility to air your views. And it's true as far as it goes, um, but I have, I have two immediate responses to that argument, go build your own website. First, the first response is, well, we did build our own website. Conservatives are very active online, and it was a lot of conservative users who helped build Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. And now that those companies are enormous and powerful, they feel they don't need us anymore. But we helped build those companies. And second, and more pragmatically, it's not so easy to build a platform to compete with the current in the current marketplace of ideas. And I've got a, an article I pulled off of uh, the website uh, townhall.com by John Hawkins. And it's, the article is a few months old now, although it was reposted um, recently in October. And, uh, the author makes some good points about the difficulties faced by conservatives who are being uh, deplatformed. And he says, as someone who has been working for a living in this business, he's talking about the World Wide Web, websites and so forth, let me drop a little truth bomb on you. We are now in a very oversaturated, corporation-dominated media environment. If you don't already have a legacy website that captured traffic years ago, and held on to it, huge traffic that you can bring in from elsewhere, 
or millions of dollars to spend, your chances of getting a political website off the ground today are infinitesimal. And that gets to the heart of the biggest problem that conservatives don't realize they have. Social media is the new public square. It's the place you go when you want to reach out and find an audience. If you're conservative, you can spend years building up an audience on Twitter, and the liberals at Twitter can arbitrarily throw you off their service because they decide you don't like, they don't like your views. So the point that the author makes in this article is that it's almost too late. If you don't already have a giant monopolistic corporation to publish your views, it's a very difficult marketplace to get into. They've got a stranglehold on it. And getting a voice heard on different platforms or new platforms uh, is very unlikely to succeed. So, you know, kudos to Facebook and Twitter and Google. They really fooled us. They built amazing platforms and invited everyone to join in the wild and woolly conversation. Conservatives jumped in with both feet. They largely abandoned their old blogs and their legacy websites and went all in to chase after that giant social media audience and to make billionaires out of Mark Zuckerberg and his ilk. And then they pulled the rug out from under us. No audience for you. Never mind that you spent years cultivating a loyal following. You're now hate speech and you're not welcome here. It reminds me of that great line from the movie Animal House. And you might remember Flounder had his, I believe it was his brother's car, his cousin's car. And the other guys in the fraternity convinced Flounder to let him borrow the car for a little while. They needed it for something. He was very reluctant to do it. And they finally peer pressured him into it. Come on, it'll be great. We'll be fine. We'll bring it back good as new. So we let him use the car. And by the end of the movie, the car had been destroyed, utterly destroyed. And he was obviously distraught, was Flounder. What happened? What happened? He wonders, how could this be? And Otter turns to him and with a very straight face says to Flounder, you effed up. You trusted us. And that's what here happened here. We conservatives generally, we trusted Twitter. We trusted Facebook. We trusted Google to, to treat with us in good faith, to give us the same right to free speech that they give to their leftist friends. And we screwed up in trusting them. And to the extent that people abandon their old websites and abandon their other uh, networks to, to go on to Facebook and seek an audience, to go onto Twitter and seek an audience, to go onto YouTube to host their videos all for free, much like uh, a drug person giving uh, heroin out to, uh, to new users for free to get you hooked. Free bandwidth, allured everybody in, and then they pulled the rug out from underneath us. Uh, good, for, good for those guys. Really, really clever. So what are we, we going to do now? What do we do now? It's tempting to abandon the fight. Polls show that a high percentage of conservatives have abandoned or are considering leaving Facebook and Twitter. But that's exactly what they want us to do. And I think it's a mistake. We can't be absent from the new public square. We have to make ourselves heard. So I'll do my part. We'll remain on the web at AmericanCulturePodcast.com. We'll keep building our Twitter followers. And we'll keep banging our heads against the wall that is Facebook. And it truly is a wall. I keep posting almost daily really interesting articles on our, on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash American Culture Podcast. And I literally have seven 
page followers on my page. My typical article that I post reaches two or three people. And it's embarrassing for Facebook because they're good articles and anyone searching for topical news stories would find would find us. But we've been flagged somewhere along the way as conservative, no doubt, as hate, perhaps as hate speech. I'm not sure because nobody sees what we're posting. And we're not alone. Uh, Dennis Prager you know, has said they have 3 million followers and they'll post new videos and their new videos with 3 million followers will actually reach, that is, get into the feed and be seen by zero of 3 million followers. But we're going to keep fighting. What else can we do? We can support folks like Dennis Prager as he fights in court. Maybe someone can successfully sue Facebook and the others for fraud when Facebook and Twitter publicly claim to be neutral, but then administer their sites with bias. Maybe someone can argue that these sites really are the new public square and use antitrust principles or the rules governing public accommodations, much like hotels are public accommodations and restaurants are public accommodations, and therefore there are limits on who they can discriminate against under the Constitution. If, uh, if Facebook and the Internet becomes a public accommodation, uh, maybe they can be forced to be more neutral. The most effective remedy may just be continued public scrutiny of these overbearing practices. Most Americans are fair-minded minded people, and these public companies and their stock prices are sensitive to negative publicity, so we can keep that up. Keep fighting. Make your voice heard. Support your favorite online voices. Stick together and let's steel ourselves to stay in this fight for the long haul. The third topic I want to hit today is that America is amazing and real Americans are not as angry and divided as CNN and the New York Times would have you believe. It's been a long time since the last episode. I feel bad about that. But it's been a crazy summer. We had our son home from law school for a while. Our daughter and her husband and their dog visited us for a while. We had lots of folks coming and going. And I have been coming and going an awful lot myself. In the last 60 days, I have visited 21 different states plus the District of Columbia. And uh, it's been great. It's been great. Um, but it hasn't left a lot of time for podcasting. Um, we've been watching, we had been watching our son's dog for the last couple of years while he uh, started out in law school. And it was time for the dog to, to join him back at school. And he goes to school in Wisconsin. So my son and I had to transport the dog from Southern California to Wisconsin. And we took a big road trip. It's a kind of a funny story. We uh, had this vision, of course, you know, two dudes and a dog barreling through the American West, going to these national parks up and over the Rocky Mountains. We needed a vehicle appropriate to that purpose, that noble road trip purpose. And so I reserved through Hertz Rent-A-Car. Thanks, Hertz. Uh, a manly SUV that would be perfect for the trip. It would have, keep us up high and ready for any situation. And we'd look... Uh, really cool rolling down the highway in our SUV. But on the day we showed up to pick up the vehicle, my SUV was not waiting for me. And the woman at Hertz instead offered me a Toyota Sienna minivan to drive. And I was crushed. My ego took a severe hit and I resisted and I whined and I complained. But at the end of the day, she didn't have an SUV for me. She had a minivan for me. 
and it was kind of a take it or leave it situation. It was gonna it was a reservation that came with a you know a one way drive, pick it up in Southern California, drop it off in Wisconsin, which which has a huge fee attached, and my hopes of getting a different vehicle uh, for a one way rental all the way to Wisconsin were low. So we took the minivan, and we didn't feel real proud of ourselves as we started rolling down the highway. But in the end, uh, it probably had more space, and it was a little easier for the dog to get in and out of, so it worked out really well, and we had no problems with it. But it was just funny how our uh, our manly egos kind of had to uh, take a hit and swallow uh, its pride to, uh, to be tooling across the country in our in our minivan. But we had a wonderful trip. We left Southern California, out of California through Nevada and Las Vegas, clipped the corner of Arizona on our way into Utah, stayed the night at Park City, had a wonderful little visit to Park City, Utah, drove up into Idaho through Pocatello, beautiful country up uh, up in eastern Idaho, turned east into Wyoming, hit Jackson Hole, spent the night in Jackson, Wyoming, saw the great saw the sunrise over the Grand Tetons and Grand Tetons National Park. It was spectacular. Saw the waterfalls and the rivers and the geysers in uh, Yellowstone National Park. Saw herds of buffalo. Uh, it was a spectacular day in Yellowstone. Stayed in Red Lodge, Montana. Drove all the way across Montana. Went to North Dakota. Saw Teddy Roosevelt National Park with the herds of wild horses and the prairie dog towns. Crossed all of Minnesota, made it into Wisconsin, had wonderful Mexican food at a truck stop just off of I-94 in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Delivered my son and his dog to their new apartment at school. And then my wife joined, joined us. She was smart enough. She didn't want to do the six-day drive, six days through 10 states. She skipped that part and instead flew into Wisconsin and joined us. And once we had our son and, our, and his dog settled, we, we, flew, we flew to uh, Oklahoma because my wife had some states she wanted to see. We've been on a quest to get all 50 states, each of us. And we took this opportunity to go to Oklahoma and see uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma and Pahuska, Oklahoma. If any of you are Pioneer Woman fans on the Food Network, uh, we saw Pahuska, the Mercantile and the Pioneer Woman's Ranch. Uh, we drove over to Arkansas saw the University of Arkansas and had an amazing run-in with a shop owner there who came looking for us in the middle of a rainstorm to give us an umbrella because she was worried about us. Uh, truly uh, the epitome of Southern hospitality and, and, and a heartwarming uh, encounter. We drove up into Missouri to Kansas City and saw the World War I Memorial there, had some wonderful barbecue. We drove through parts of Kansas because my wife needed to see Kansas. And so we saw a couple hundred miles of Kansas farmland and she got her 50th state. Later on, we flew in, in the year after we flew back home to California, we, we left again to go to Michigan for a wedding in Detroit, in Detroit, Michigan. For work, I had to fly to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, my wife again joined me. We saw the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall. We not, did not have any cheesesteak on this particular trip. But we also saw New Jersey. I spent a day at Fort Dix in New Jersey. Saw Delaware. Went to Rehoboth Beach in Delaware, which was my 49th state. We drove through a bunch of Maryland, 
uh, as we were heading down to Delaware and then up from there to West Virginia. We saw Virginia briefly, and we got to West Virginia. Harper's Ferry National Park in West Virginia was my 50th state. Wonderful historic area. We had a wonderful stay there and a day looking all around. And then we drove down to Washington, D.C. and saw the monuments, and we walked the mall, and we saw the Vietnam Memorial and the Korean War Memorial and the memorial to the nurses in the Vietnam era. And we climbed the steps up to uh, the Lincoln Memorial and read the speeches inscribed on the walls there, and they were, they're still inspiring after all these years. And it was really exhausting the last 60 days or so, but it was really, really fun. And as I say, when my day job is added into the mix, there has been little time for writing and recording a podcast. The good news, though, is that by getting disconnected from Twitter and from Facebook, from the nightly news, being on the road allows you to get reconnected with our amazing country and the wonderful people who live in it. And you learn that real people are not in L.A. or San Francisco or New York, and they're not on CNN, and they don't write for the New York Times, and they're not on Twitter. Real people out there in America are not angry or divided, as the media would have you believe. Real people are great. They're working hard, raising their families, building their businesses, serving their customers, holding the door open for you if your hands are full, and unexpectedly giving your dog a delicious treat or a bowl of water when you least expect it. It was revitalizing. It's very, very encouraging. And I've talked about the power of a road trip before and what an amazing country this is to take a road trip in. I can't recommend it enough. And I was so uh, uh, grateful for the opportunity to drive across country with my son and to have these trips with my wife and see so much of, uh, of this great land. Now, our fourth topic today is what has President Trump been up to lately? And it's, this is a fairly quick hitter, but I just want to point out that uh, the Trump administration, in case you didn't see, uh, renegotiated the NAFTA agreement, the North American Free Trade Agreement. It's now the North American, uh, it's now the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. Okay, so hashtag winning. Everyone was panicked that, that Trump was ruining our relationships with our important trading partners. He said he was going to fix it. He said it was going to make it better for the American people. And he has, of note, uh, the, the New Deal will benefit constituencies in important states such as Michigan and the auto industry and Wisconsin and Minnesota for the dairy industry. It should not be lost on you that Wisconsin was a very important win for the president in the 2016 election. And this hopefully will go a long way toward helping him uh, win Wisconsin again in uh, 2020. The economy continues to boom. Unemployment has now reached the lowest levels that it's been at since 1969, almost 50 years. Consumer confidence is reported as high, and data from the manufacturing and service sectors indicate continued growth. Okay, and of course, uh, in addition to Judge Justice Kavanaugh getting confirmed, um, the President is busy, and the Senate are busy confirming many other federal judges uh, and getting conservatives on the bench, which was a key promise that the president made to conservatives uh, when he ran for office, and he's been keeping that promise. In addition to economic news, we find out that uh, the president's poll uh, approval among black voters is now up to, and you see different polls, 35%, 36%, 37%. 
I believe I saw that he only got 8% of the vote of African Americans in 2016. He's now up to 35% or more support among blacks. Uh, the public, the very public support of Kanye West is certainly helping that. But what's happening here is people's eyes are being opened. The economy is booming and blacks are benefiting perhaps disproportionately uh, from this boom. Black employment is at an all-time high. Okay, People notice these things. He's reached out to the community. He, he has shown that it is personally important to him to help uh, the black community with jobs and, uh, and in their financial condition. And it's paying off so far at the polls. Whether he'll have coattails and whether the, that support will translate to support of other Republican candidates, I think is very much uh, to be seen. But uh, but tremendous tremendous news uh, on the, on that front as well. So the president's been up to a lot of hashtag winning uh, in recent weeks. And my fifth topic for the day, again pretty quick, but uh, I wanted to bring to your attention. The American Journal of Psychiatry uh, recently published a study, and I've got an article here on the BBC's website about the study. And they uh, they started, they noted from they tracked and tested 3,800 ad- adolescents over four years uh, regarding drug and alcohol use, and they found, um, of course, that uh, taking alcohol and drugs is known to cause problems with cognitive abilities such as learning attention and decision-making, as well as academic performance at school. This study found that these problems increased as cannabis use increased, i.e. marijuana makes you stupid. Also, alcohol makes you stupid for for teenagers. The key kicker here, though, was the effects were lasting for marijuana, unlike those of alcohol, which means that in many cases, uh, youngsters who might drink alcohol will experience cognitive problems, but those problems may diminish over time as they cease use of alcohol, whereas children or students uh, who use marijuana will experience cognitive problems. It'll make them stupid, but they won't get smarter again when they stop drinking or stop uh, using the marijuana, uh, which is uh, alarming. Uh, And it highlights very much the importance of keeping uh, illegal drugs like marijuana away from children. And it it uh, makes you wonder, you know, when at what point are we going to are we going to regret all of the legalization of marijuana that's going on across the country? I have a lot of problems with it from a you know from a federal law perspective, from a supremacy perspective. The, the federal government has outlawed marijuana. Uh, states should be required to rep- to respect that, and if the states don't like it, they can pressure the Congress to change the rules. But they shouldn't be allowed to legalize it in the face of a federal law that prohibits marijuana. But as we learn more and more over coming months and years about the negative effects of marijuana, I think we're going to regret greatly uh, the legalization. I think we're going to find, I suspect we're going to find, that uh, marijuana is every bit as bad for you as tobacco. And you think about the war that the left wages on big tobacco and the how many anti-smoking ads do you see in a in a week watching television? Even vaping, they can't they can't even have you using the e-cigarettes and vaping, even though it's while not good for you, it's certainly better for you than traditional cigarettes. But they're so against the big tobacco companies. When are they going to turn their attention to big marijuana? When are they going to start suing 
marijuana producers for what is sure to be horrible effects over a long period of time against habitual marijuana users. Well, those are our five topics for today. Stay tuned after this short musical bump to learn more about our podcast, how you can be in touch with us, and how you can help us grow. enjoyed this episode of the American Culture Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our show, we are on the web at AmericanCulturePodcast.com. That's all one word, no spaces. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash American Culture Podcast. Again, no spaces. And we're on Twitter at Twitter.com slash AmCulturePod. AmCulturePod. It's our Twitter handle. We now have nearly 12,000 followers on Twitter. If you could give us a like or a follow or a retweet or a share on Facebook or Twitter, that would be awesome. Ours is a new broadcast, and you can really make a difference and help us grow our audience by subscribing to the American Culture Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, on Stitcher, on Google Play, or on whatever platform you found us. If you really want to be a superhero, you could go the extra mile and write us a five-star review. I would be very grateful. All content of the American Culture Podcast is copyrighted by Earl B. and AmericanCulturePodcast.com. The views and opinions of the host and any guests expressed on the podcast are solely those of the speakers and not of any other person or organization. Thanks for sharing this time with me today. Let's meet back here again real soon. <music>